couple weeks ago, I, I began sort of introducing the series by talking about all the different New Year's resolutions I've done over the years. I've, since I was maybe a senior in high school, I've probably done, I bet, 20 or 25 different New Year's resolutions. When I was a senior, uh, the first one I did was I, with a group of guys, we agreed that for the year we weren't going to drink any carbonated beverages, which you know, felt like a big deal, especially when 75% of my intake, liquid intake at that point in time was Coke. And um, I'm from South Carolina. We didn't really know better back then, I don't think. Anyway, and um, so then, then, you know, in subsequent years, I did different resolutions. I did a New Year's resolution one year where I tried to do 100 sit-ups and 100 push-ups every day. Um, I did a New Year's resolution where I drank only water for the year. I mentioned this. And uh, people would say, how do you feel? Like, assuming I felt great. And the answer was, I was exhausted. And I was like, I'm so tired. I miss coffee. Anyway. And I even did a vegetarian diet um, for one year that turned into three and a half years. And so, you know, we're used to doing these resolutions, but the truth is we have kind of a hit or miss and maybe mostly miss relationship with New Year's resolutions. In fact, Oscar Wilde, if you guys are familiar with Oscar Wilde, he said, good resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. Make sense? In other words, uh, that we as human beings often lack the necessary resolve to maintain those resolutions we make. The good news is, and part of what we're seeing in this series on God's resolutions, is that God is not like us. He keeps his resolutions. He is resolute. He is determined. And part of what we looked at the first week is that he is uh, determined to forgive us, right? That was the first, um, the first sermon, that one of his resolutions was to forgive us. In the last week, we took a look at how God is also determined that he's resolute in his preservation of us, that he will keep us to the end. And then today, we're going to be looking at his uh, resolution to give us rest. And let me just tell you really quickly about this concept of rest and this idea that as a, as a preacher, you know, I basically have Monday to Thursday to try to write a sermon and be done with it. And I feel a little bit like uh, one of the, the chefs on those TV shows where there are four different chefs, and basically they give you cocoa puffs, salmon, and Swiss chard, and they say, you got an hour to make something that tastes good out of this, right? And then afterwards, the judges eat it, and they're like, this is terrible, right? And that's a little bit how I feel sometimes at sermons um, where I'm like, oh, man, I wish I had two weeks to work on this. But Lord willing, God will, uh, will take some of these ideas from Scripture today about rest, and that he will actually give you the ability to slow down, uh, to stop your anxiety, to stop your worrying, and to trust in him. Before we jump into the sermon, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thanks for each of the people that are here this morning. Um, again, I don't know why they're here, but you do. And Father, regardless of what their motivations of being here this morning are, I pray, Father, that you would uh, call them to yourself. Uh, Father, whether it's someone who doesn't yet know you and isn't yet in a relationship with you, I pray that you would call them to yourself. Or Father, if it's someone who has been walking with you for a long time but is distracted and busy and harried that needs to simply uh, be invited back into your presence, Father. I pray that you would also draw that person to yourself. And then, Father, I pray that as we read your scripture today, and as we see your heart towards us, and as we see your heart towards us expressed in the fact that you gave your son Jesus uh, to us in order to give us rest, I pray, Father, that we would accept this gift of rest that you offer us. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, recently, there was a little Twitter spat between Elon Musk and Ariana Huffington. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Elon Musk, but he's the, the guy that started Tesla, the car company. Uh, only two car companies over the history of American automakers have never gone bankrupt. 
Ford is one and Tesla is the other. And then Ariana Huffington is the woman that started the Huffington Post. And so the, the little Twitter spat was that uh, Elon Musk shot out something in Twitter where he said, hey, I'm working 120 hours a week. I average four hours of sleep a night, et cetera, et cetera. And she responded essentially by calling him on the carpet about bragging about himself only sleeping a limited amount of time. And she basically referred to some scientific studies that show how much sleep humans need. Now, this particular discussion was particularly relevant um, to Huffington because several years before that, she was working in her office. Again, she's starting this giant sort of you know, media outlet. She was working in her office and she passed out. She hit her cheek, broke her cheekbone, had to get stitches in her face. She went to the doctor uh, you know, just then and then went back for following checkups. And she expected to have the cause of her passing out to be something like, you know, you've got cancer or you've got this blood disease, or you've got this horrible thing going on. And she said, after all these tests and all these meetings with the doctor, he basically said, well, I've come up with your diagnosis. It's that you're exhausted, right? That you are working too much. And his remedy was you need to rest. And so it was particular to her. Now, the absence of rest isn't just detrimental to us as individuals. Uh, when we decide not to rest or choose not to rest, it's actually detrimental to others as well, to society, to the people that we love, to the people that we work with. There's a man named Gary Yates uh, who wrote an article on a book called The 24-Hour Society, who was written, uh, which was written by Martin Moore Eddy. And I'm gonna read a little quote from his uh, article about this book. He says this, in the 24-hour society, Martin Moore Eddy says, our most notorious industrial accidents in recent years, the Exxon Valdez, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, the fatal navigation error of Korean Airlines 007, all occurred in the middle of the night. Now, this book was written a while back, so some of these illustrations are a bit dated. When the USS uh, Vicenes shot down an Iranian Air A300 Airbus, killing all 290 people aboard, fatigue-stressed operators in the high-tech combat information center on the carrier misinterpreted radar data and repeatedly told the, their captain the jet was descending as if to attack, when in fact the airliner remained on a normal flight path. In the Challenger space shuttle disaster, key NASA officials made the ill-fated decision to go ahead with the launch after working 24 hours straight and getting only two to three hours of sleep the night before. Their error in judgment cost the lives of seven astronauts and nearly killed the U.S. space program. We ignore our need for rest and renewal at the peril of others and ourselves. We are a culture and we are a people badly in need of rest, right? We sleep with our cell phones and they go off in the middle of the night with notifications and beeps and whistles and buzzes and so we don't sleep enough. Um, Netflix has invented that amazing thing where at the end of the first episode, you got five seconds and you're on to the next. And so it's real easy to be like, well, we'll just do another episode, right? And so we're exhausted, right? We are worn out. And the point of these illustrations is to say that that uh, need for rest, that exhaustion has a cost. God knows that we're exhausted, right? He knows our temptation to overwork and not rest. And so he offers us the gift of rest. Listen to Matthew chapter 11. Listen to what Jesus has to say about this idea of rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, right? Just think about if that's you, or if you feel like maybe that's you. Do you feel weary? Do you feel burdened? I love the version that says heavy laden. 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is God determined to give us rest? And what does Jesus have to do with it? We're gonna jump into that discussion, but before we do, I'm gonna have a quick proviso, and I'm gonna talk about the fact that though we are given the gift of rest, we were also created for work. And so that's gonna be the first thing we undertake, is though we were given the gift of rest, we were created for work. We're gonna look at Genesis 1 and 2, beginning in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Part of what God is doing is he's telling Adam and Eve, he said, I need you to work. I need you to have dominion. I need you to rule. It's what you're created to do. And then in Genesis 2, God says this. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So again, the joint roles of Adam and Eve are to work, to care for this garden. Now, most of us, most Americans at least, dream about retirement as the promised land. We dream about retirement as the ultimate goal. But the idea of retirement is actually very new. It's relatively new at least. A recent article called How Retirement Was Invented by Sarah Laskow in The Atlantic points out that retirement as we know it is only about 140 years old. She writes this. She says, in 1881, Otto van Bismarck, the conservative minister president of Prussia, presented a radical idea to the Reichstag, a government-run financial support for older members of society. In other words, retirement. The idea was radical because back then, people simply did not retire. If you were alive, you worked, probably on a farm, or if you were wealthier, managed a farm or a larger estate. It would take eight years, but by the end of the decade, the German government would create a retirement system which provided for citizens over the age of 70 if they lived that long. This was a big if at the time. That retirement age just about aligned with life expectancy in Germany at that point. Even with retirement, most people still worked until they died. So let me qualify really quickly here. And I'm not, I'm not saying that retirement is necessarily a bad thing. The bigger issue, as a friend of mine eloquently stated, what are you retiring to, right? What are you retiring to? Meaning, when we retire, we shouldn't stop working. Rather, we should be intentional about what part of our world God is calling us to bring order to. I think we should continue, actually, to work as long as we are able. In working, we are following the example of our creator, God, and our redeemer, Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 16 uh, and 17. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. It's clear from these passages we've read, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, even this John 5 passage, that God created Adam and Eve, and he created us to work. 
Genesis 1 indicates that Adam and Eve were to continue God's creative work of bringing order to chaos, right? Of bringing potential out of disorder. They were to extend the garden into the rest of the earth. Chapter 2 indicates the same. What's interesting is that most of us think that work is actually a result of the fall. That's how we typically think about it. We think about work as like, ah, that's a result of the fall. I can't wait to go to heaven and be done with all that, right? But each of these passages recount Adam and Eve's purpose before the fall ever occurred. In other words, we were created to work before sin entered into the world. It's only after the fall, after the curse uh, came upon the earth, that we face work by the sweat of our brow and have to contend with thorns and thistles. We're actually created for work and we're living out the image of God in us when we are at work. We feel satisfied when we're bringing order uh, out of chaos. Here's what Tim Keller has to say about uh, all of this idea of work in his article called How Faith Affects Our Work. He says this, the Christian faith gives us a new conception of work as the means by which God loves and cares for his world through us. In other words, we are joined with God, we're teammates with him in bringing order and loving the world, caring for the world. Look at the places in the Bible that say that God gives every person their food. How does God do that? It's through human work. From the simplest farm girl milking the cows to the truck driver bringing produce to the market to the local grocer, God could feed us directly, but he chooses to do it through work. There are three important implications of this. Listen to these carefully. First, it means that all work, even the most menial tasks, has great dignity, right? Uh, The guy that's laying bricks uh, in Spain might think, man, this is the worst job ever. I can't believe I'm just laying bricks. But it may actually be that each brick that he's laying is creating the cathedral, the Sagrada Familia in Spain. He might be creating something beautiful. Secondly, it means that one of the main ways to please God in our work is simply to do work well. Some have called this the ministry of competence. What passengers need first from an airline pilot is not that she speaks to them about Jesus, but that she's a great, skillful pilot. I agree. In fact, I'm always a little suspicious of people that put the ichthus on their business sign. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I just want a really good uh, car salesman or surgeon. Third, this means that Christians can and must have deep appreciation for the work of those who work skillfully but do not share our beliefs. In other words, part of what Keller is saying all, in all of this is that all work is meaningful. He's saying that uh, all of this work, it points towards doing this work good because we're creating something for God. And then finally, it means that we respect the work that other people do. Let me add a quick clarification. What I mean by work is not just what you get paid to do. So what I mean by work is not just what you get paid to do. Work is anything that you do that continues God's creative work of bringing order to chaos, all right? That's what work is. Take the work of being a homemaker, male or female. C.S. Lewis called homemaking the most important work in the world. I think this is a great quote. He says this, this is in his letters to Mrs. Johnson. He says, I think I can understand that feeling about a housewife's work being like that of Sisyphus, who was the stone rolling gentleman. I'm pretty sure lots of you understand um, that reference to feeling like you're doing the work of Sisyphus. He goes on to say, but it is surely in reality the most important work in the world. 
What do ships, railways, mines, cars, government, etc., exist for, except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? So your job is the one for which all others exist, right? I love that. I love the fact that he says this is the most noble task, the most noble work we can do, and ironically, you do not get paid for it, though it is the most valuable thing that anyone can offer. So we're created for work, to bring order to the chaos of the world, and that calling to bring order to the chaos was not given after the fall or in response to the fall. Rather, our ontology, our being as workers was wired into us from the very beginning. And when we work, we display the very image of God, right? We are uniquely satisfied when we are at work and we are uniquely unsatisfied when we're not. So that is the first point, we're created to work. And though we were created to work, and this is the main point of this message today, is that God also gives us the gift of rest. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, you'll be probably familiar with these verses. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He set it apart. I had a professor in seminary named Dr. Yarbrough, and Dr. Yarbrough met his wife at a Black Sabbath concert. I don't know if you guys know Black Sabbath. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne was the lead singer for Black Sabbath. Um, He worked as a lumberjack for seven years before going on to graduate school and then becoming um, a professor of New Testament theology at Covenant Theological Seminary. There used to be this cool picture of him like in Oregon as a lumberjack with this huge chainsaw and he had long hair. It's kind of, kind of a neat little seven-year period of time for him. But it's funny, I remember him talking about this idea of the Sabbath and I remember him saying that as a child, he never really understood the idea of the Sabbath. He said, it wasn't until one day when I was a little bit older that my dad had me digging a French drain around the backside of our house. Now, a French drain is where, like if you live on the side of a hill that comes to the back of your house, you might dig all the way around the sides and all the way around the back, sort of a deep sort of trough, and then you might line it with gravel so the water goes into the gravel and it runs around the side of the house instead of going in the basement. And he said, we'd been doing this project for a couple days, and Saturday night rolled around and we still weren't done. And he said, when Sunday got there, he said, my dad said, all right, we're gonna take a rest. And he said, for the first time ever, I was like, ah, I get it, right? Now I see why this idea of rest is so important. Some of you feel like resting, whether that's on the Sabbath or otherwise, but you think that resting is a burden. Ceasing from your labor is an unwanted distraction that prevents you from being productive, and it prevents stuff from getting done. I've definitely felt that way at any number of points over the years. Sociological data shows that for many Americans, resting feels like something that only weak people do. I think that's part of that Huffington, uh, Elon Musk debate. We even brag about how little sleep we get. I recently heard a woman talking about a date that she went on, and she said the guy that I was sitting with at dinner was bragging about how he only gets four hours of sleep a night, and she said, I thought to myself, but I didn't say it, but she said, I thought to myself, maybe if you would have gotten a couple more hours of sleep, this date would be more interesting. So that's kind of funny. 
you look at Deuteronomy 5, and if you look at Exodus 20, these are the recountings of the Ten Commandments, you'll see that embedded in the concept of the Sabbath is depth and is richness, and it's fundamentally a gift. Exodus 20 roots the command to rest in God's creation. Listen to Tim Keller's explanation. He says this, Exodus 20 ties the observance of a Sabbath day to God's creation. For God rested on the seventh day. What does this mean practically? Since God rested after his creation, we must also rest after ours. This rhythm of work and rest is not only for believers, it's for everyone. As part of our created nature, overwork and underwork violates the nature, that nature and leads to breakdown. To rest is actually a way to enjoy and honor the goodness of God's creation and our own. To violate the rhythm of work and rest in either direction, laziness or in overwork, that to violate the rhythm of work and rest leads to chaos in our life and in the world around us. Sabbath is therefore a celebration of our designs from an article called The Power of Deep Rest. Whereas Exodus 20 links the Sabbath, this idea of a Sabbath rest to our design being made in God's image, Deuteronomy 5 links the Sabbath to the rescue, the redemption of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy 5 goes on to tie this observation to this idea of God's redemption. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5 says this, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Here again is Keller on this idea of rest and Sabbath. God portrays the Sabbath day as a reenactment of emancipation from slavery. It's like a holiday. It reminds us how he delivered his people from a condition in which they were not human beings, but simply units of capacity in Pharaoh's brick production system. Anyone who cannot obey God's command to observe the Sabbath is a slave, even a self-imposed one. Your own heart or our materialistic culture or an exploitative organization or all of the above will be abusing you if you don't have the ability to be disciplined in your practice of the Sabbath. Sabbath is therefore a declaration of our freedom. It means that you are not a slave, not to your culture's expectations, let that sink in for a minute, not to your family's hopes, let that sink in for a minute, not to your medical school's demands, not even to your own insecurities. Again, this is from the deep power of rest. So the Sabbath is something that's practical. We stop working, we rest, we are refreshed, we gain perspective. But the Sabbath is also a reminder of our identity and our status. Identity, because the Sabbath is a reminder that we're created in the image of God. So when we Sabbath, we are simply following in the footsteps of our Father who created us. We rest from our work because God rested from his. Status, because the Sabbath is a reminder that we were once slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to a godless identity, but that we have been set free so that we can rest, knowing that God rescues us, knowing that God protects us, knowing that God provides for us. We see that truth communicated in Exodus 33 to Moses. Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai 
where God met with him and gave him the 10 commandments. You guys may remember this story. And when Moses came down from the mountain, he heard this noise of revelry and partying in the valley below, and the Israelites were having a big frat party. They were worshiping a golden calf that Aaron, his very own brother, had made. Moses was furious, and he was at his wit's end with leading God's people when God commanded him to take the people to the promised land. What did Moses need to accomplish such a great task with such a rebellious people? He needed to rest in the knowledge that God was with him. The task seemed too big. He needed the knowledge that God was with him. In Exodus 33, we read, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, what God was saying to Moses was, I've got this, take it easy. How many of us would just melt if someone walked into our home and said, I'll take care of dinner, you just sit down and rest. Or, I'll take care of the kids, why don't you just go lay down, take a nap. And God enters into our stress, our chaos, the mayhem of our lives, and he says, I'm with you, I've got all this. I've got your marriage, I've got your kids, I've got your employment, I've got your education, I'm right here with you, I love you, and I want to give you a gift, the gift of rest. Our job is definitely to work, right? But then it's to rest, remembering that God is in charge, that he's with us, that he loves us, that he's for us. That's why the author of Psalm 46 could say what Ryan read this morning. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, be still, rest, and know that I am God. When you've done all that you can do with your children, rest. When you've done all that you can do at work, rest. When you've done all that you can do in that relationship, rest. Be still and know that he is God. So, so far I've said hopefully lots of true things. We're created to work, we're also created to rest, and that that rest that God prescribes is a reminder that we are created in his image, and it's a reminder that he has set us free. That rest is even a reminder that God continues to care and continues to provide for us. But what about Jesus? If you remember, we started the sermon by quoting Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paradoxically, what Jesus says to these people who are burdened and heavy laden and who are exhausted, paradoxically, he says, I'll give you rest by giving you a new work, by giving you a new job. So the question is, what is Jesus' work? What is the work that he requires of us? In John chapter six, we see the answer. The answer is to the question of how do we inherit eternal life? And Jesus says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
And so our most important work is to believe in Jesus. It's only when we take Jesus' yoke upon us that we can actually truly rest. In fact, he says, you will find rest not just for your bodies, but you'll find rest for your souls. It's a deep internal rest. This morning, as you look around the room, you see uh, tables on the right-hand side of the room, my right-hand side of the room, with bread and wine. On the left-hand side of the room, you see tables with bread and grape juice. And uh, each of these tables is a symbol, it's a representation, really, of the gospel, of the good news of all of this. And the bread and the wine, obviously, are symbols of Jesus' death, but they're also symbols of his life. They're symbols of his burial. They're symbols of his resurrection. They're symbols that God loves you. They're symbols that God cares for you. These uh, elements of bread and wine are symbols that God says, I've done the work for you in Jesus so that you can rest and simply believe in the one that I have sent. That's what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is not something that we offer to God. The Lord's Supper is something that we receive from him. And in this meal that we call the Lord's Supper, what is communicated is that you are forgiven, right? So much of what we do is trying to earn forgiveness. But in this meal, God says, you're forgiven. So much of what we do in life that exhausts us is we try to reach some invisible bar of self-justification that if I hit that bar, then all of a sudden, I will feel like I'm okay, that my existence is justified, that God will accept me. But in this meal, what God says is through Jesus, I've done all that is required for you to be justified, for you to be declared righteous, for you to be declared not guilty. This meal of bread and wine is an offer of resting in Jesus' perfect life, his death, and in his resurrection. And in this meal, God says, I forgive you. In this meal, God says, I love you. In this meal, says, God says, you are perfect in my sight, not because of your righteousness, because of the righteous, but because of the righteousness of my son, Jesus. So I would like to invite those of you today who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, those of you who trust in Christ alone for your rest, I'd love to invite you to come and to take this bread, to tear it, to dip it in the wine, and to receive God's offer of rest from your labors, believing that Christ Jesus has done all that is required for you to be made right. Let's take a moment. I'm gonna read the words of institution, then I'm gonna pray and ask that when you're ready, you stand up, you walk to the table, and you receive that offer of rest that God gives you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, please help us to receive the rest that you offer to us. Whether that's um, the rest of the Sabbath, Father, or uh, just the rest of knowing that you're in charge, that you're in control. Father, whether that's the rest of knowing that you are with us or knowing uh, and experiencing the rest that you offer us in Jesus who gave up his life for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might be declared righteous, that we might be set free, no longer slaves. Father, I pray that as we take this bread and we take this wine, that we would allow your voice spoken 
uh, through this meal to be louder than the voice of Satan, that we would take this meal and that your voice would be louder in it than our own internal voices, our own internal psychology. Father, I pray that in this meal, you would give us rest for our souls. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.